This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. On the 14th and 15th of April 2016, the Caldor Centre was proud to co-sponsor a symposium at All Souls College, Oxford, to celebrate the scholarship of Professor Guy Goodwin-Gill. The symposium brought together leading international refugee law scholars and practitioners. The following podcast is a presentation by Volker Turk, entitled A Global Compact on Equitable Burden and Responsibility Sharing. Well, thank you very much. I was very much looking forward to coming here because I thought for once I don't need a tie. And then I come to this conference and then I see most of my academic colleagues at the time. But the real reason why I was obviously looking very much forward to coming here is because of the person we celebrate, and that's uh, Guy Goodwin-Gill. And it's, I'd like to actually, on behalf of the institution that I represent, and on my own behalf, pay tribute to you, Guy, not just as an eminent international lawyer, and I'm saying international lawyer, I'm not saying international refugee lawyer, because one of the things that Guy has done over his many years of scholarship was precisely to ensure that general international law and the principles of general international law are actually translated into refugee law. And uh, that's incredibly important because obviously it is an area of international law which requires the rigor and the rigor that we know from Guy that needs to be applied in the context of refugee law. And I think we we have always very much benefited precisely from, from that rigor, from the doctrinal edifice that you have been establishing for decades, uh, both in the, your scholarship, in your, in your extremely impressive writing. I mean, there is a, a skill of articulating your thoughts that is unparalleled, and also in passing it on to uh, students, to PhD students, um, but also to generations of refugee lawyers, as well as UNHCR staff. And it's very fitting, therefore, to, I mean, your initiative to actually celebrate your scholarship to us coming all together is, is, is really a wonderful opportunity to pay, to pay tribute to you. Now, I'm going to talk now about what is termed as a global compact on responsibility sharing, and I will give you some of the genesis of this. In fact, it's been facilitated by the presentation that Walter has just made, and it's because he referred to one particular element that you saw in the SG report on the World Humanitarian Summit, which refers to predictable and equitable responsibility sharing when it comes to refugee movements. And before I do this, I'd like to give you some background to this, which I know all of us have been grappling with, and those of us who have been dealing with refugee issues for quite some time have always been trying to find a solution to, and that is one of the biggest protection gaps that we face. And it is precisely what does international solidarity mean in the refugee context? What does international cooperation mean when it comes to burden and responsibility sharing? And um, this is also very much linked to Guy's writing, because as you know, he has written quite a bit about these concepts, um, including uh, lately 
and I think it's it's very fitting therefore to have this as, as part of the discussion that we're having here. If one looks at where we are today, and that leads me then to the global compact, I think we are at a crossroads in many respects when it comes to international refugee law. Um, why are we at a crossroads? It's partly because of the numbers. We know, I mean, all of us who have worked in protection issues, we know that when the numbers go up, it's always infinitely more difficult to create strength and bolster a protection space. Unfortunately, there is this combination of numbers and protection space. Um, and because it is easier in, at a time when governments feel they're not overwhelmed, Obviously, you can have much more liberal policies and you have, uh, in terms of asylum and, and protection, it is much more difficult when the numbers go up and when issues arise and, when, and that's what we see in Europe as we speak. You see even in the, most, uh, in the countries that have the most liberal asylum systems today, you see a quick... <coughs> chipping away at some of the fundamentals of it, and you see this in countries such as, even now in, in Sweden, there is a debate about uh, the legislation. You've seen it in Norway, you've seen it uh, in, in Austria, uh, in a number of other countries. So that's, um, that's one of the, the big issues that, that we currently face. Unfortunately, the debate in Europe is one that has more global repercussions than meets the eye. In all discussions I have had over the last couple of months with, <coughs> in the context of outside Europe, I just came back from Nigeria and Cameroon, uh, in all these discussions when it comes to protection space, the situation in Europe is referred to. Uh, the same in Southeast Asia. And sometimes it's difficult to compare apples and pears, and some of it is also comparing apples with pears. At the same time, it is also a fact that some of the rhetoric, some of the measures that are seen, are not necessarily the measures that the same countries pursue in Africa or in parts of Asia or in, in the Northern Triangle in relation to Mexico. So there is this disconnect between some of the professed foreign policy goals of the very same countries that when it comes to their own domestic policies are quite different. So this is infectious. Whatever the debate is in the industrialized world is very infectious and has major ripple effects that we don't even know yet what the consequences will be. The other phenomenon is the national sovereignty aspect. I mean, it's, it's one that is sometimes a natural reaction to fear that you sort of go inward and you don't you get into your shell, you don't actually open up and do exactly the opposite. Uh, and that's what we see certainly in Europe at the moment. I mean, some of the hard-won battles on, on multilateralism, on European identity, on European politics are waning quickly. There's also, and it reminds me a little bit of some of the discussions we had post in the human rights world in particular, some of the discussions we had post-September 11 on torture. 
that some of the deeper rationale why certain principles and why certain frameworks exist, that we lose them in the discussion. And, uh, and there is sometimes even loss of historical knowledge. I mean, it is important to go back to the very genesis of why this particular international framework was established in the wake of the Second World War, why it is that it motivated the drafters at the time to do this and the states to adopt it, and why it is that this is so necessary. And I'm afraid uh, what we see in the, in the debate today is almost uh, uh, amnesia about why these things are important, why they are in the interest, in the enlightened self-interest of states, and why one needs to put them forward. So this is why I think we are at a crossroads. So what's the best in this very foggy situation, this very unclear situation? The, the antidote is exactly the contrary to what, what is happening. It is more multilateralism, it is more international cooperation, it is more broadening a global base of responsibility, and it is fundamentally a more predictable and equitable responsibility sharing when it comes to countries that are faced with large-scale influxes. And it's not just related to this discussion, temporary refugee, no for more and, um, and solidarity, but it is actually giving substance to international solidarity and international responsibility sharing. And it's actually interesting in the terminology. We, there was a lot of debate about this over the last couple of decades. And it started very much with what is in the convention, as you know, in the preamble of the convention, it talks about burden, count of asylum, there's one preambular paragraph that talks about this, talks about burden. Um, in the discussions within the executive committee, but also in the GA and internationally, there was a lot about this burden sharing and the need for burden sharing, um, based on this concept of international solidarity. It doesn't come from nowhere. It's obviously based on international law. It's on the essence of what the United Nations itself is founded upon. I mean, if you look at some charter provisions, uh, one, one, uh, three, Article 1, 3, 2, 7, 55 and 56, it all talks about international cooperation when it comes to economic, social and humanitarian affairs and the need for it because precisely they are transboundary issues. They are issues that are international in character and nature and as a result require for the, for the states to come together and apply a certain response that is done in accordance with each other. So that's clear that we have quite some legal foundations. The legal foundations, however, level are, are at a certain abstract general level. They are not uh, put, they are not spelled out in great detail and there, what comes in is precisely the type of discussions that we have about burden sharing. And you will see it has somewhat evolved to responsibility sharing. I mean, there, are, there is more recognition that it's not just about burdens, it's also about responsibilities. And quite frankly, last year I wonder whether the next evolution is about opportunities. So from burden to responsibilities to opportunities, I was reminded about this because the Canadian ambassador who was just voted in as the vice chair of XCOM, was actually saying, shouldn't we just avoid burden and responsibilities and just talk about opportunities? And I think it's an interesting evolution, which I will come to in a, in a moment, because I think it also informed a little bit the discussion we had this morning. 
um, about some of the paradigm shifts that are happening while we go through a bit of a gloomy period because you know, whenever there's a gloomy period at some stage there is a light at the end of the tunnel and some of these paradigm shifts that we see occurring may well be that light at the end of the tunnel and I think we have to ask ourselves including in the academic circles how we can get there in the end so you have legal provisions in the charter, you have legal provisions in the 51 convention, we have XCOM conclusions that talk about burden sharing there's not, I mean most ex- I think it's probably the theme that is the most permeated throughout the XCOM and the GA processes where you have talked about international solidarity and responsibility sharing you actually have a number of conclusions on it, one on comprehensive regional approaches one on burden sharing itself and then you also have state and organizational practice and uh, again it's, it's good to review that practice and to learn from it I mean one, there are the two conferences, ICARA 1 and 2 I mean some of you will argue well, they have maybe failed but at least they were beginnings of something they were beginnings to show that you, do, you did need funding in order to address some of the problems that, that countries in Africa faced at the time in response to, to refugee issues you had, of course, the often cited and well-researched CPA for the Indo-Chinese. And uh, it was a comprehensive plan of action that had a number of elements in it, but was fundamentally one where the international community came in, a number of states, resettlement countries in particular, who essentially made the ones who are recognized as refugees through a process in, the, in Southeast Asia and accepted them for resettlement, which is what it was at the time and was very necessary. At the same time, if you, if you have discussions today with governments from Southeast Asia, they will always refer back to this. And this thinking has actually not much evolved. They always see refugee as something that the international community has to take care of, even if it's no longer a mass influx situation. So this resettlement, you know, refugee equates international community take care of it is one that is very difficult to get out of because of course in today's world uh, no one can afford anymore that a refugee is just the matter of the international community it is predominantly and first and foremost one that, it, that countries that are directly dealing with it also have to address and have to have ownership of so the CPA had its place it had a number of good lessons to be learned. Then, of course, you had Sirefka in a different context again, because it was very much linked also to the peace process and to a development process and to a solutions process, but nonetheless, it was one which certainly uh, gave us some interesting lessons. You had in the context of the former Yugoslavia, the Humanitarian Issues Working Group, which was a humanitarian uh, forum that discussed issues outside the political realm in order to address them, both on displacement and refugee matters, you had again a comprehensive plan that was at the time proposed by UNHCR and part of which was implemented by states, I remember with water, we had long discussions about temporary protection, we've all moved on ever since from, from that period, but temporary protection was part of that in Europe in response to the, to the particular the, the crisis in Bosnia you had the CIS process which was less operational but certainly important in terms of clarifying what type of movements are t- had been taking place and are taking place in the former 
in the former Soviet Union, you had Iraq and Syria. And from Syria, and I come to that because it was mentioned, I think, by Eleni in particular, some of the lessons that we're learning out of the Syria response are, in fact, where some of the paradigm shifts are taking place. The 3RP that you mentioned is precisely where most of what is new is happening as we speak. So we have good organizational and state practice that's worthwhile to look at, to benefit from, and to learn from. Um, but all these were ad hoc. They were not necessarily reliable in terms of templates that one could use for the future. And precisely because international refugee affairs are, of, are a global concern and require the involvement of the international community as a whole, we need to learn from these elements and see how they can be translated into something that is a bit more predictable. And uh, some of the things that we have learned are that you need all relevant actors involved. It has to be centered within the region, but it also requires other actors to be involved. And there, the coalitions are still relying on only a handful of states. I mean, we have to push the boundaries a bit. You know, the donor countries for UNHCR, for the humanitarian uh, organizations, yes, they have grown a bit, but not much. The same when it comes to resettlement and humanitarian mission. They have probably have moved from 15 to 30. So there is some growth, certainly also in terms of numbers, but it's still, it's not more than that. So you have not yet it being seen as something that does require a global response. We have seen some interesting ideas around the development, humanitarian development continuum, or in fact the interaction between the two and the increased interaction. We have seen much more about the involvement in particular of development banks and also the World Bank, which is interesting, especially in the Syrian context. So there are a number of lessons that we learn. And the huge opportunity is this year, we hope, when it comes to the 19th September event, that the GA has put into a resolution, which is a bit different from what you saw in relation to the World Humanitarian Summit, because the World Humanitarian Summit did not have a GA resolution as its uh, authority. When it comes to the 19th September event, which is about large-scale refugee and migration movements, you actually have a G resolution that has asked for it. And there will be an SG report that will come out in May. And uh, within the UN, there has been, I must say, quite a consultative process in trying to influence and shape that report. And one of the core elements of that report will be precisely this idea of a global compact on predictable and equitable burden sharing. And, sorry, responsibility sharing. We actually have dropped the word burden. Hopefully it will come to opportunity at some stage. And none of what is in there will surprise you. It is essentially the lifting and the synthesis of all these organizational state practice over the last decades distilled into something that, and the lessons learned from them as well, distilled into what we think is quite a coherent presentation of um, what needs to be done if a country is faced with a large-scale influx. And it's about addressing root causes involving the country of origin, 
obviously within the limits of how this is possible, because one of the things that we see when it comes to the responsibilities of the country of origins, we often fear that unlike in the past, where there was still some shame, including by leaders and political elites, that they would generate refugees, that shame seems to have been lost. There's hardly any responsibility by leaders of the countries of origin these days when it comes to to refugee issues. So that's very important to recognize that responsibility, to make sure that leaders and elites feel responsible when actually people from their country are compared to leave. There's the whole issue of access to protection, the border situation, the response and how one deals with it, very much based obviously on the rule of law with some practices that we have seen in particular in Africa with prima facie recognition as a response of large-scale influxes, but also looking at temporary protection. The whole issues around uh, the legal status and group-based protection mechanisms because these are response to large-scale influxes. Then reception, identification, registration, access to healthcare. The, the, again, the whole gamut of activities that are necessary when a country is faced with this. A whole of government... We are moving from a whole of government to a whole of society approach. So the partnership is much broader, as we have discovered. It's not just whole of government, it's actually whole of society. And we have seen this even in Europe, because civil society played an extremely important role. Then the whole issue of funding. There was an interesting uh, seminar last week with the World Bank and UNDP on, at Wilton Park precisely about financing, development and protracted situation, displacement situation. So there I think we see quite a lot of shifts that, that are actually very positive because they involve actors that previously were not involved. On solutions, and that's part of obviously what this global compact will have to be about, again, we see a broadening of the reset. I think we are moving away from traditional resettlement towards humanitarian admission, humanitarian transfers, um, other ways of other pathways of admission I avoid the word legal pathways of admission regular pathways of admission additional pathways, private sponsorships scholarships, whatever you, you so a much broader area of, of engagement and solutions and um, I'm going to stop in a minute um, and then I think also a realization and maybe that's very much related to the 2030 sustainable development agenda, that when it comes to self-reliance and solutions, we need to move away from parallel systems that are often done for refugee movements towards more integration. So when it comes to education, let's invest in a national education program and ensure that refugees can access that national program rather than developing parallel ones. But you have the same on healthcare, you have the same on, on a lot of those issues. So, in a way, the, the SDGs and the develop, Sustainable Development Agenda is an opportunity to broaden the base of those who can benefit from it, including non-nationals, and particularly non-nationals who are at particular risk, such as refugees, but also vulnerable migrants uh, and other categories who would fall under a protected uh, status. Labor mobility is yet another one, a new area, and some of you have been working on this uh, for quite some time, one that is certainly one of the future. How do we get there? 
So there will be an outcome document, we understand, coming out of this SG report, coming out of the 19th September summit. As you know, there is also a U.S. summit. The U.S. President Obama will the next day also convene a leaders' meeting on refugee issues. So there are a number of very high-level stakeholder meetings that actually make the case precisely for what it means to fill this most important protection gap that we currently face. It's the antidote to the realities that we see. We can only hope that that is actually going to work well and will indeed be effective. It will not happen overnight. I think we're all aware of this. But I think it gives us a chance at least to explore what is possible. And it could be through a GA declaration. It could be, I mean, some of us have been thinking about if there was ever an additional protocol that were to be written to the 51 Convention, it would probably be one on responsibility sharing of this nature, benefiting very much from all this experience and from this renewed interest in refugee affairs and refugee matters by many people around the world who have in the past had not much of a clue about this. And we can only make this our coalition of people who would actually try to address what we think is one of the most urgent remaining uh, protection gap to be resolved. So thank you very much. Thank you. Very much.